Well, there's an old wisdom tale uh, that comes from the um, tradition of Hasidic Judaism, comes from um, Eastern Europe, and it's been told uh, for many, many years. And it's the story of a young man who lived in an Eastern European village. And it so happened that the young man was a little bit envious of others, particularly of another older man in the village. And the young man happened to have a bit of anger in his heart, a bit of resentment and a bit of greed that had been festering in his heart. And so when he caught a bit of gossip about this older man in the village, the younger man was quite excited. And rather than check the facts or find out if what was being said was true, he very excitedly began to pass the word on and exaggerated the story. And as so often happens in situations like this, he eventually managed to take down the reputation, the career, and many other elements of the older man's life. And again, as so often happens, the truth of the matter caught up eventually. And when the younger man learned that what he had passed along certainly wasn't true, he was filled with remorse. So he ran off to the rabbi in their village and said, Rabbi, here's this terrible thing that I've done. And the rabbi said, well, what did you say? So he told him what he said, and he said, now that you know what I said, can I please be forgiven? And the rabbi goes, uh-uh, not so fast. And he gave him a bag of feathers. And he said, take these feathers and put a feather on the front porch of every home in our village and of all the homes that ring our village throughout the countryside. Make sure you don't miss a house. Put a feather on every front porch. And the young man thought this was odd, but desperate for forgiveness. He's like, okay, I'll do it. I got it. Grabbed the bag, distributed feathers all over the village, and went back and said, now can I be forgiven? All the feathers are gone. And the rabbi said, ah, not so fast. He says, now go and pick all of those feathers up. And collect them all, shove them back in the bag. And the young man was like, that's absurd. I can't go back. I can't go back and pick up all these feathers. He said, the wind has surely carried all of them away. And the rabbi said, and so it is. That's exactly what happens with careless words. Jesus once said, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Whoa. If you haven't figured it out by now, we are about to dive into the set of Proverbs that challenges us with how we speak to one another. There is tremendous life-altering power in our words. And my guess is that every single one of us has a place in our life where the words of another person have injured us or hurt us. Maybe anger, envy, exaggeration, a lie, gossip, you name it, most of us can point to a place in our life where we say, oh, that got me, it hurt me. And if we're honest, and I know I've done this, most of us have done that to somebody else. And maybe we didn't set out to do it, but how many of you have ever gone, oh, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I said that. And like feathers, it is so very 
very hard to stuff those words back where they came from. It's actually impossible to do so. Words as a weapon starts early in life. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Not true. We say that as children when someone has wounded us with their words. I would take a broken arm over a broken heart any day. My guess is most of you might feel the same. And on the flip side, hopefully you have a place in your life that you can point to where someone spoke kindness to you. Maybe a small encouragement that didn't seem like much to them, but it helped you form an opinion or an idea about a decision that you were making. Some of you who love the careers you're in are doing what you do for a living because someone encouraged you toward that at one time. Some of you can point to a time where you struggled and another person just put their arm around you and came alongside you and just said something like, you got this. And maybe it's a t-ball coach from when you were five or a mentor or a friend or a parent that you have today. There is also power in words to make our lives full and meaningful. Proverbs 13, three reads, those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. And if we think about words for a bit, we realize that it's not the actual combination of letters or sounds that hurt us. I mean, words, after all, are just symbols strung together to create a meaning to convey something. Jesus, we don't see in scripture, uh, he was concerned at all with grammar or syntax or proper punctuation. This isn't um, something that is high on the list of learning for the disciples. So the actual word itself doesn't really matter much, but the heart behind the word means everything the reason the word was said, and the reason it came from the life and the mouth of the person who said it is where all the power in our words lie. It's why we are caught off guard when someone we expect to have a kind word for us suddenly has something negative to say and we, we didn't expect it. And some of us, probably all of us if we admit it, have these dark spaces in our hearts where the hard words hide. Because on most days, you don't wake up immediately yelling at someone. <laughs> most of you walked in here today able to communicate with kindness to another human being. When we ask you to turn and greet your neighbor, most of you did that. You didn't go, oh, my God, I can't wait to get out of here. What's wrong with these people? Even if you felt that, <laughs> which some people feel in church, I get that. You didn't say it, but then there are these times when something different comes out, when the filter seems to vanish, and what the depths of the heart are really full of comes to light. Our speech is an indication of the deeper realities of our heart. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, the mouth speaks 
what the heart is full of. Every single one of us, regardless of our age or our life stage, has unlimited access to words that disempower and disenfranchise. We have the opportunity every time we open our mouth to betray another human being and the God that created us and created them. The hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and their lips promote instruction. The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. What I could do right now is run through a list of behaviors that we can be about to learn how to talk nice to one another. But the reality is all of you, all of us already know this. We already know it. It reminds me of the title of that old Robert Fulgram book that came out in the late 80s. Everything I need to know I already learned in kindergarten. Little kids, the minute they snatch a toy from a sibling and shriek and cry or say something like, I hate you, give it back, you're awful, whatever it is, immediately preschool teachers and kindergarten teachers swoop in and redirect that. And part of the academic experience as we all grew or are growing now, if you're still in school, is to learn how to speak well. So we've actually already learned most of what we need to know. And some of us have heard these proverbs before, and some of us have studied Jesus before. So there is nothing new that I can tell you today about what to do. So what we need to chase after today is why we don't do it. Why, even though we know better, we still say terrible things. And part of the reality is that we are broken, messed up human beings. And each one of us struggles with some version of anger or greed or envy. Some of us grew up in homes that allowed hateful speech to be the norm. Some of us have backgrounds that did not teach us to speak well. And so we default sometime to these early programming that we've had. Some of us carry pain and try so hard to avoid it, we end up bringing it to others. And so we have this reality. And then we add all of that, the complex cocktail of our lives, and we add that to the realities that many of us share in our dominant culture. We are busy. How many of you were out of breath by the time you got here? Or you parked a lot further than you expected and you're looking at your watch, trucking through the parking lot and stress starts to build. And we're told somewhere there's this thing called work-life balance, but most of us really haven't quite figured it out yet. And we wanna make the team and we wanna make the grades and we want our kids to make the team or the grades. And some of us have more people living in our house than we know what to do with and some of us don't have anybody living in our house and that's stressful to us, and some of us are deep in debt, and that's an anxiety we carry all the time, and some of us have little tiny children running around our homes, and they exhaust us as much as we love them, and others of us are caring for aging parents, and they exhaust us, and then 
Add to that the fact that we live in an urban area with eight million people and we wanted to go downtown and it's five o'clock on a Friday and we're trying to get on the Eisenhower. <gasps> and then somebody chirps at us a little bit or they throw a little salty comment our way. And all of a sudden it's like, it's on. And we feel like a pillow fight and the pillow just ripped open and there's feathers flying everywhere. And they live the same life we do, only a different version of it. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, yeah? And their pillow goes. And suddenly, feathers are flying everywhere, and we're saying things that we never meant to say. Or another way to injure someone with words is to not say something at all and be all like, all right, fine, we're done. Ask my husband, I do this. We're done talking. I'll show you. I'm not going to give you any words ever again. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what happens. <laughs> and like those feathers, our words never truly disappear. My understanding from an attorney friend is that in court, you can say something that is not founded in truth at all. But just to get the thought in the mind of a jury, it gets thrown out there. And even if it's removed from the court record or whatever they say in the movies, <laughs> it's out there. And it's already working in the mind and you can't get it back. This is a lot of why we say hurtful things. This is what happens in our hearts. Our biology is actually wired for this because in stress, chemicals start pumping and adrenaline starts going and we are ramped up. And so our hearts are filled with these realities instead of the realities of the God who loves us. Jesus was celebrated for what he said and what he did not say. It's why we are still reading his words today. It is why we are here this morning quoting the words of Jesus. And Jesus read all of these Proverbs. He was a Jewish rabbi. He studied the Old Testament. He knew these words and he lived them. He spoke mostly Aramaic and he lived clearly in a very different time and place in history than we do, but his life was chock full of stressors. He consistently faced social, religious, and political pressure. Adoring mobs and angry adversaries chased him around town. The guy rarely had a minute alone. Can you imagine a mob of people following you with almost everything you did? And when he tried to get away to a quiet place to rest, they would go around the lake or they would go the other way. They would eventually catch up to him and find him. And he taught he taught a lot of God's wisdom, and the closest friends he had didn't understand what he was saying. Some of you know the stress it causes when someone isn't getting it. And instead of understanding his words, they made it all about him. Who's the greatest? Am I the greatest? Pick me, pick me. I've got my hand up. Make me your number one guy, Jesus. All of this in a hot, dusty culture without air conditioning and automobiles and cell phones and whatever else would make travel from town to town to town easier. And oh, by the way, every single day, he was one minute closer to the death and the crucifixion that he knew was coming his way. If anyone had a reason to throw a bag of feathers up into a tornado, it would have been Jesus. 
And yet listen to what we see about Jesus and his interactions with people in the Gospels. Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the Bible that are the stories of Jesus. These Gospels record some 40-ish times that Jesus had a conversation with an individual or a group of people. Yet only nine of those times was he the first one to speak. And 31 of those times, the other person or group of people started the conversation. Jesus spoke in parables and aphorisms. Aphorisms are pithy little one-liners, almost proverbial wisdom. He rarely answered directly. He often answered a question with another question. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. He was not ruffled by interruptions or easily angered when someone interrupted his conversation. In fact, some of the greatest wisdom we have comes from some of those interruptions. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Jesus rarely pressed for closure. He didn't chase after people to seal the deal. He did not feel the need to exaggerate to make his point, which is very convicting for a preacher. <laughs> he gave space for others to talk. He asked questions and then, oh, guess what? He actually listened to the answers, not just listening and waiting for his turn to talk again. He spoke with calm, collected deliberation. He did not speak if he did not have something significant to say. The prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool's heart bleats out folly. Jesus did not feel the need to speak endlessly to make a point. The Lord's Prayer is less than 60 words. 60 words. Pretty much sums up almost everything we need to know about prayer in less than 60 words. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. And people, because of all of this, listened to Jesus. They didn't always agree with him. They didn't always appreciate what he had to say or understand it fully, but they listened to him. And why was he able to do any of this? Because his heart and mind were connected to what came out of his mouth. He said in Matthew 15, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. Now, I am not naive enough to think that just because we all chatted it up a bit here in this sermon that we can all go home and just get our hearts in the right spot by dinner time and we'll speak beautiful things from here on out. This is a lifelong journey. We learn how to bite our tongue over and over and over again. And just when we think we've figured some of it out, something else triggers us, and we learn it all over again. But what does it mean for us? How do we begin to get our hearts in the right place? And while getting this right in life is not easy, part of the answer is easy. We need to begin to just see one another in ourselves the way God sees us. We need to learn how to have an eternal perspective, a godly perspective on who we are and who the people that we interact with are. 
We need to learn to see ourselves and to see them rightly because God looks at us with a heart of love. His perspective on us is that we are his beloved children. And we seem to have a problem believing that either about ourselves or about the people that we interact with. And if we can trust that seeing ourselves and others the way God sees us is part of the solution, we can begin to get our hearts right. Because when we see other people and ourselves in the wrong light, things get warped and twisted. If we do not see ourselves as children of God who are beloved, if we begin to think that maybe somebody else has it better or is more beloved, if we begin to doubt ourselves, things like envy, exaggeration, and greed start to creep in. And yes, there are people who see themselves as better than they probably should, but you know what, those are the minority. Most of us wake up in the morning with some insecurity nagging at us somewhere, some curiosity about whether we're gonna match up or whether we're gonna be able to pull it off. And then we begin to look at others and say, well, God blessed them with that, where's mine? And how come that person has those gifts? You know, I've done this. Whenever any of the worship leaders and our guitar players are up here, I'm like, oh man, like I wanted to be a guitar player. <laughs> you guys leave here singing their songs. You don't leave here going, oh, I'm gonna quote that sermon tomorrow. <laughs> There's a part of me that wants to be a rock star. <laughs> We want what other people want. Comparison begins to breed envy and exaggeration. My friend Amy is reading a great book by a woman named Kay Willis Wyma. The book is titled, I'm Happy for You, Sort of, Not Really. <laughs> this captures it. Mindy Kaling, a few years ago, came out with a book titled, Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me? Question <laughs> mark. These are the questions we have. And now we live in a time in history where you can take your phone and look on Instagram and Facebook and see how supposedly, how much better someone else has it than you. And you troll through and you're like, oh, they all got together last night? How come they didn't invite me? Gosh, that looks like fun. And they've got a little hashtag that's like, best life ever, <laughs> best friends for always. And then you have a choice to make. Let it go and trust that it isn't all it's cracked up to be or go, oh yeah, look where I was last weekend, hashtag better life than yours. And this thing starts happening and then, oh, guess what? The sin of exaggeration creeps in. Social media is such a scam sometimes. I'm on it. I post all kinds of best life ever stuff. I'm a victim of this or guilty of this, I should say. And don't turn HGTV on because Chip and Joanna Gaines have it way better than you when it comes to the kitchen. And then what happens is now I'm more worried about what you have than what God has made me to do. And every single one of us, every single one of you has a God-given, God-ordained purpose in this world, a special set of temperament and gift and calling that only you can do. No one else will do the thing that God has for you to do. And when we spend more time worried about the things that everybody else is doing, we lose the opportunity to do the thing we're doing. And then our hearts harden and we begin to come envious 
and greedy and jealous, and we cannot talk well to people out of that place because then it's, well, you know why she got that. Well, you know why he really got the promotion. I mean, come on. And that stuff starts to come out of us instead of the love of God. And if you're rooted in who you are and you trust that you're the beloved and God loves you as much as everybody else, your love comes out in a different way. So believe who God made you to be and don't play that comparison game. See yourself as God sees you and then see yourself as God sees others. And there are people in our lives who are colossally frustrating. They see the world differently than we do. They organize themselves differently or not at all. We struggle with them for a variety of reasons. And the anger we might have about the way they do their thing begins to creep in and harden our hearts. And instead of seeing them as God's beloved, worthy of kind words, we see them as the reason for our anger. And we see them as the reason for our great frustration. I remember years ago when I was in Colorado and I was struggling with something one of my classmates had said to me in a class and I had um, gone to see one of uh, the mentors that I had while I was in seminary, and I told her this story. And this student had indeed said some hurtful things. They, this person had a theological opinion on something. And I was mad. And I went to my mentor, and I was like, she's going to validate my anger. I wanted her to say, yeah, you should be mad. Yeah, let's stew over this together and then go get them. And that was what I wanted. And she was like, well, you need to learn to see that person how God sees them. And I was like, really? I was like, that stinks. I was like, that's not exciting. That's hard. It, it doesn't fire me up. That, just, that makes me sad because I got work to do. But she was right because I saw this person as the object of my anger instead of a child of God. And to be clear, there are people who have perpetrated offenses against us that we will never get over in this lifetime. And so I am not saying here, just gloss over everything hard that's ever happened. But what I am saying is even the people who have committed the hardest crimes are still beloved children of God. And we may walk through our life carrying more anger and more refusal to forgive than the God of the universe does. And there are people who are judged more harshly by us than they are by God. So we cannot carry the burden of seeing people more harshly than God sees them. We have to see them as the beloved children of God, much as they frustrate us and much as they may have wronged us. Seeing ourselves rightly and seeing others rightly is the way to a generous, soft heart that can speak words of truth and love to others. All of us are partners in the rescue and the redemption of humankind. That is why we are here, to bring the love of Jesus to others and to trust it for ourselves. And when we partner with God in that, with a heart in the right place, we can do almost anything God has for us to do. It's interesting to consider, again, these little feathers. 
that waft around us. Your feathers feel so light and um, almost meaningless at times. And then on the flip side, feathers, certain feathers on certain birds are some of the strongest materials in nature. A team of British researchers discovered that some birds, the sinewy material that makes up their feathers is as strong as carbon fiber, which by the way, is used in the production of Boeing's 787 Dreamliner. It is strong material. And feathers are waterproof. They protect from downpours and deluges. They can be submerged fully and rise up still to protect. They insulate from the ice and the freeze and the pain of a deep, deep chill. They make flight and movement happen. They are smooth. Did you know the feather of an owl makes no sound whatsoever? Which is what some of us should do on occasion. They're strong. They carry birds for miles. There's a bird called the common swift, a tiny little bird that researchers discovered will stay in the air up to 10 months before landing. And this little bird will fly millions of miles in its lifetime. So yes, there are feathers that float haphazardly out there, like we discussed at the beginning, that land in all these places and blow off with the wind like our careless words. And then there are feathers that rise up on the wings of massive birds and protect and provide and participate in the rescue and the redemption of those are who are so very beloved by God. So my friends, my question for you and certainly for myself is what kind of feather do you want to be as you float through this life? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word, for the conviction that lies within it, and for the hope and for the generosity that lies within it as well. Thank you, God, that you gift us with the opportunity to start again and again every day, to tame our tongues, to use better words, but to more importantly change the heart that gives birth to the thoughts and the words that come from us. Lord, as your scripture says, we want the words of our mouths, Lord, and the meditations of our hearts to be oh so pleasing to you. So may it be that we are those people. In Jesus' name, everybody together said, amen.